Well, friends, here we are in our third week of four on the book of Jonah. To give you an idea of how far we've come, I'd like you to take a look at the Bible that sits down here on the communion table. If you've never noticed this, each week, Reed and I set the Bible to match what our scripture passage is. And that book has not changed in three weeks. That's how short this, this book of the Bible is. But it teaches us a lot about who God is and who we are in relationship to the Lord. So if you would go ahead and turn to it in your pew Bible, we will study the word together. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. So when we left Jonah last week, he's sitting on the shoreline covered in fish vomit, having just prayed one of the most shallow and self-righteous prayers ever recorded in Scripture. What a moment that must have been. Because here is a guy who is Israel's most beloved prophet, and now he's covered in fish bits. It is always easier, always, to be a follower of God when God asks you to do stuff that you want to do anyway. If you like it, If you've got time in your schedule, when God asks you to do it, you are all about it. It is always easier to follow a leader when that leader is going in the direction that you already want to go. But consider when kids play Simon Says, right? It all starts off very easy. Simon Says, lift your right hand. Simon Says, lift your left hand. The kids do it, and it's all fun and games until the leader says, Simon says, move your body in some torturous uh, contortion kind of way. And then what happens? Everybody quits the game because it's too hard to follow the leader. Given the prayer that Jonah just prayed last week, it wouldn't be all that hard to imagine Jonah sitting there on the shoreline feeling pretty proud of himself that he has prayed a prayer that one— never acknowledges that that he ran away from God, but two, that he thinks saved him. Jonah's still convinced that his prayer and his words and his thoughts are what got him out of the belly of the fish. This poor prophet is completely clueless at the start of chapter 3. So it must have come as quite a shock to Jonah when the word of the Lord came to him a second time, saying, get up. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim the message that I tell you. It turns out that not only has God not given up on Jonah, but God has not changed one bit about what Jonah is supposed to be doing. Oftentimes, followers of Jesus claim that we want to be used for God's purposes. You know, that we get very pious and and very righteous about it. If God will just, just use me. And what they want is God's leading and God's direction, and they they want God's favor upon their life. But what they don't want is to be bothered by the things that they think are little things. They don't want to be bothered with prayer. Who has time for that? They don't want to be bothered with Scripture. Who understands that? They don't want to be bothered by worship because it's on Sunday morning, and how inconvenient is that? But see, these little things are huge things to the Lord. And that's why God doesn't just go on and just leave us in charge of the big things until we're obedient to the small things. Jonah pops out of the fish, 
And what he thinks is going to happen is that he's going to go right back into the heart of Israel. And he's going to go where it's safe, where he's popular, where he's loved. And and he's going to go preach the word of the Lord, which seems like a really easy thing to do, right? It is much easier for me to preach the gospel here in Bradenton, Florida, than it is over in Afghanistan. It's a whole different ballgame. So Jonah's so proud of himself because in his prayer he says, you know, if if I get out of here, I'm going to go preach. And his plan all along was to go back and, and preach in Israel. But God didn't ask Jonah to do something easy. He didn't ask Jonah to return to Israel. God went all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1, and he starts again. And one thing that we learn about God in this, in this story is that he's not just going to skip over steps because it's inconvenient for us. And step 1 hasn't changed. The step is Jonah is to go to Nineveh. But I do, I do want you to look closely at a small but significant change between chapter 1 and chapter 3. This is the joy of having such a small book of the Bible to study that you can go back and forth really quick. Between chapter 1 and chapter 3, something changes that gives us a little bit of a heads up as to what might happen when Jonah gets to Nineveh. In chapter 1, God says, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But then when we get to chapter 3, God says, Get up. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Something's changed there. In chapter 1, God references a great wickedness. And when God speaks of a great wickedness in the Old Testament, there's a good chance that somebody is about to get wiped off the map. But here in chapter 3, there's no mention of wickedness. There seems to be a softening of the tone. And that might give us a clue that Nineveh might possibly get spared here. So Jonah sets out, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across, and Jonah begins by going into the city, going on a day's walk, and he cries out to the people, 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is the worst sermon ever. Ever. Should there ever come a day when I'm preaching or Pastor Reed's preaching, Pastor Sung's preaching, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, that is the worst sermon ever, you go to Jonah 3 and you read the worst sermon ever. Because what kind of sermon is that? Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no intro. There's no story. Nobody's laughing. There's no message of hope or redemption. God isn't even mentioned here. And here's a tip-off for you when you're looking for the worst sermon ever. If somebody ever gets through a sermon and they've never once mentioned Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit, there's a good indicator there that you have just heard the worst sermon ever. So Jonah has already decided that Nineveh is destined to be destroyed. And he's thinking that it's going to go all Sodom and Gomorrah, that there's going to be fire and smiting and wrath. And the reason for that is that Jonah just doesn't like these people. He doesn't want to deal with him. And the sooner that they are destroyed, the better it's going to be for everybody, namely Jonah. It's kind of like when a city buys one-way bus tickets to ship their homeless people somewhere else. They, they sell it as everybody's going to be better off because of it. Everybody? Everybody? The people that are shipped and bust out of town, they're going to be better off? This is why it's such a good thing that we humans 
aren't left in charge of everything because we have a really hard time seeing the whole picture. But it is a wake-up call for all of us in ministry. The other day, uh, I was talking to an elementary school administrator, and he was joking, so I don't want any reports going back to the school district that he said something he shouldn't have had. He was, he was joking. And he says to me, he says, you know, elementary school would be great if it wasn't for all these little kids. Um, he was joking. He was joking. But you have to admit, all of us have to admit, that there's times when we really believe, all joking aside, that a situation or a ministry or an event would be better if, if some group just didn't exist and we, and we didn't have to deal with them and they didn't have to be included. And God is about to demonstrate to Jonah that, that such a decision about excluding some group or even wanting to get rid of them is not for Jonah. It is above Jonah's pay grade to make that call. So Jonah comes into town with God's big announcement that Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't believe Jonah, they believed God. So they proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on a sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat there in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock, because in the Old Testament times, they believed that animals could sin as well, none of them shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. So what's happening is all the way from the top down, the people of Nineveh do a complete 180. They didn't just apologize for their behavior. You know how sometimes when you're dealing with kids and, and you're trying to, they're, they're trying to get to an end that allows them to have a cookie or to go play, they'll say they're sorry for whatever just so that they can move on. Not in this case. That's not what's happening. This group of people, all of the Ninevites, everybody from the king on down, they turn away. They turn away from their violence and their poor behavior, and they turn towards God. That's what repentance is. And even more than that, what we see here is we see the king. The king, he's the leader of an entire nation, and he leads the way in repentance. That is a huge thing for any of us that are ever going to be in a position of leadership, whether it's here in the church or out in the public sphere or even in your own family. Leaders are usually thought to be the ones who set vision and mission, but a great leader will always lead the way in repentance and humility. When the king does this, it shows a really stark contrast between the nation of Assyria, which has Nineveh in it, and Jonah. Sometimes followers of Christ falsely believe that somehow we're above sin and repentance. That, that somehow, once we became believers in Jesus, we were no longer ever going to sin, be sinning. We were never going to need to repent. Nowhere in this story, in all three chapters, have we ever seen Jonah apologize or repent. He doesn't hold himself accountable for anything that he's done. 
Instead, he just marches right along his path of judgment and self-righteousness. And even then, even after giving the worst sermon ever, the power of God works in the hearts of the people despite the ineptitude and the arrogance of the preacher. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God did, in fact, see that they were genuinely repentant. You can't play games with God. You can't con God into doing what you want. God sees all. God knows all. So he understood that the hearts of the people had been changed. They were more than just sorry. They turned away from their sin. So God responded, and he did not do what he had threatened. You have to be so careful with this particular verse. Because just because God changed his mind does not mean that God can be manipulated at will. This isn't a story about how God changed his mind. This is the story about a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If we see God as a God who spends all of his time looking down at us, waiting for us to mess things up only so that he can zap us, what's the point What's the point of all that? Because none of us is perfect. So if that's the case, it's only just a matter of time before God's going to catch you and wipe you out. What kind of God is that? Instead, God shows mercy. That's the God that we follow, a God that shows mercy. We're talking about a country here, this, this Assyria, this Nineveh. They are playing worse than the buccaneers did last week. And in the last few minutes, in the last few minutes, God saw a change in them and spared them in the final play. That's what happened here. So does this mean that Jonah was a false prophet? Because remember, Jonah said that Nineveh was going to be overthrown. Well, perhaps if if we take overthrown to mean complete destruction, but actually Nineveh was overthrown. Because here at the end of chapter 3, the whole city is under new management. They weren't destroyed but they weren't left the way that they started out. And here again, we learn something about our God. He refuses, absolutely refuses to leave us where we are. That's something that Jonah is having to learn the hard way. I think sometimes when we don't want to do something, rather than take on the accountability that comes with saying, no, I don't, I don't want to do it. I don't feel like doing it. I'm too busy to do it. We go ahead and we begrudgingly do something. I don't know if that's ever happened to you where you begrudgingly did something. And it becomes apparent to others in in our attitudes by the way that we treat them and by the way that we behave when we're doing it. As a teenager, there was nothing that I hated more than having to weed in the garden. And my parents had this huge wraparound garden that went two-thirds of the way around our house. So one Saturday morning, Dad informed all three of us kids that we were going to go out and and pull weeds that day. And my brother and sister, the good ones, they popped right up and went out the door to pull those weeds. I, however, spent an hour, an hour preparing the way to get out of this. So I rolled out of bed in my pajamas, walked right into the bathroom, dumped like a half bottle of hair gel in my hair to make it look as gross and nasty as possible, I took out the black eyeliner and smudged it under my eyes, you know, so that, that I'd look really, really, really bad. 
And then I put on a bathrobe and I stuffed it full of Kleenex. And so I go out and, and I get to the garden and I weakly pick up a hand shovel because I'm dying at this point. And I loudly plop down on the cement with a groan so that everyone would notice how miserable I was. Well, no one seemed to notice. Dad just kept right on going. AJ and Katie kept right on going. And so I decided it was time to enact phase two of my plan. So I pulled out one of those Kleenex and I blew my nose so loudly that the Canadian geese thought it was time to migrate south. And I muttered something about how I was going to die out here and the allergies were going to kill me. And if anybody cared about me, they let me go back inside. And Dad and Katie and AJ just kept right on weeding. So for the next three hours, I just sat there, absolutely miserable. But my dad would not give up, and he refused, absolutely refused to let me go inside. I probably weeded no more than a foot of the garden that day. A day upon further reflection, I would have to say, was only miserable because I chose to make it that way. But by the time that late afternoon rolled around, the garden looked beautiful in spite of me. And it was clear that my father's plan had come to completion. Our God does beautiful things all the time in places and with people that we think that we can't be bothered with and honestly don't want to bother with. But know this, know this, our stubbornness, our selfishness, even our arrogance is not going to convince God to stop his beautiful plans to restore and save his people. And in that process of salvation, we might find that our, we are called to those places, those places like Nineveh, so that we can also realize that we stand in need of forgiveness and redemption, just as much as those people that we can't seem to be bothered with. To God be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen.